0: part of our church but the way that she's been willing to follow you wherever you lead her God continue to anoint her and bless her I pray that she'll come to love Florida and mainly because it's where you've called her Lord continue to lead and guide her as to exactly what she should be doing in the future help her to follow you one day at a time though and help her to always know that our prayers and our love are with her so Lord we send her off with, with the blessing of this church and we know with your blessing, too, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thanks. And then is Josh Brown back there somewhere? Okay. I was going to, I saw his brother, and I saw you guys, I thought you'd be there. But I was going to pray, for, well, we'll pray for Josh anyway. He's leaving to go in the Navy, and so really for him it's just a higher level of video games. But... Um, <laughs> let's just pray for Josh, and then he'll feel really, he'll be relieved he didn't come this morning. Lord, we do lift Josh up to you, too. We know that this is a big step for him, and we're proud of him, and yet I know for his parents, there's that anxiety of seeing your baby go off and join the military, and God, we believe that you have great plans for Josh, so please just protect him and strengthen him, help him to grow closer to you, and to know that you're with him as he's there in the in the military, and so Lord bless him in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, let's turn in our Bibles now to Philippians chapter one. We're starting in uh, today on a study in Philippians. We'll probably be in Philippians for a while. It's all it's a short book, but it's a such it's a book that has so much to offer. It's probably I would say my favorite book in the. In the New Testament. The the church in Philippi was most certainly Paul's favorite church. You can see it, it oozes throughout it, that he's writing from a deep heart of compassion, even to the extent that the book's kind of disorganized. He Paul just kind of gushes his thoughts and his feelings for the Philippians. He thinks highly of them, really loves them, and, and that makes it special. The theme of the book is joy. And the word joy or rejoice appears in there. I counted 21 times, so I know it's at least that many times. And and the irony is the book is written by a guy who's in prison to a church that he founded when he was just freed from prison after being beaten. You can read the story. We don't have time to go back extensively, but Paul, on his second missionary journey, went to Philippi Met up with Timothy just shortly before that. Timothy was with him there in Philippi as he was with him at this point when he wrote the book in, from Rome. But Paul went to Philippi, met a woman, Lydia, who, down at, when they were doing the laundry. And she was kind of the first convert and started, they started the church in Philippi at that point. The next thing that he did while he was there, by the way, I should say Philippi is in Greece like in the Macedonian area, the northeastern part of Greece. And so after leading some people to the Lord right off the bat, he delivered a young girl who was possessed by demons. And she was a fortune teller working for some guys making money telling fortunes. We don't know exactly how it worked, but what we know is when she got saved and was delivered from these demons, that now she wasn't able to make money for the guys she was working for anymore, couldn't do her tricks anymore, and as a result, they got mad and went and had Paul and his partner Silas thrown into prison. That night, they were singing praises to God after having been beaten and tortured They were just joyfully rejoicing in the Lord, and God shook the place, and all the doors opened up, and they could have left, but they didn't. When the jailer came in, he was about to kill himself because he knew everyone must be gone. And Paul said, don't do yourself any harm. We're all still here. This guy was so impressed, he took Paul and Silas to his house that night. And they shared the gospel with the jailer. And the jailer and all of the people in his family accepted the Lord. And between those people, that was the start of that church in Philippi. Paul later was freed and and continued on his missionary journey. But that church had a special place in his heart. Composed of a lady that he met at the laundromat a girl who had been possessed by demons, a jailer who had been torturing Paul, and they put them together and it made the church in Philippi, the Philippian church. Well, now Paul has come towards the end of his ministry. It's about probably 62 AD, and Paul is in prison in Rome. He's already been through certain levels of trial, but he's waiting for his final appeal to go to Caesar. And he's there in a dungeon in Rome, And writing this letter to his favorite church, the Philippians. The Philippians had sent a gift to Paul, and they were the only church that regularly supported Paul. And they sent a gift through a guy named Epaphroditus, who was a, really a, a guy who had a deep heart. And we'll see that as we go through the book, when we see a little bit more about Epaphroditus. But Paul was writing a thank-you note to the Philippians for the gift that they had sent, because he was about to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi with his thank-you note, And this book, Philippians, is his thank you note, basically. But in this book, we learn so much because a guy who's in prison, who's still known for joy. Back in the day when he was younger, these Philippian people were just so amazed that anybody could praise God in the middle of persecution. And now it's getting worse. Paul is facing any day now the death sentence. And and yet, here he is still saying, the things that you learned... You saw the joy that was in me? I'm telling you, it still works that way. God can still allow you to be people who radiate the fruit of the Spirit, that love and that joy and that peace. And so in this book, we see so many ideas and clues that help us to have the joy without which we have no strength. As Christians, as a church, if we lose our joy, we've lost our strength. And so this book is really important for us to see how Paul figured out how to change his thinking, to change his attitudes in such a way that he had the peace of God and the joy of God in the middle of all kinds of negative circumstances. And so in a way, this book is a good place for us to stay. Maybe we'll never finish it. Maybe the Lord will come back before we finish it. I don't know. But until the Lord comes back, we need the lessons of this book of Philippians, and so I'm excited to be able to spend a little time in it with you, and it's a good time for us really as our church is kind of getting a fresh start as we will be moving here, Lord willing, in the next several weeks, and I think this is a great book to have in transition, to remind us of what the church is all about, to remind us of what the body of Christ is supposed to be, to help us to be the kind of church that Paul would look at us and say... That's what church ought to be because that's what he's doing with the Philippians. It, every other book that he writes, he's correcting grave doctrinal errors and things like that. But with the Philippians, you don't see anything like that. He, he points up a couple of women who are squabbling, but come on, that doesn't even count. He, for the most part, it's like he's going, you guys are doing what you're supposed to be doing. And he's just telling them how blessed he is and reminding them of what the source of our joy is. Now this morning we'll look, um, in the first service I intended to do verses 1 and 2, but I never got past 1, so we're just going to look at verse 1, there's a lot here, some of it may be disinteresting to you because it sounds like church history and church politics, but it's something that's important for us as Christians to understand um, because there are some terms that are mentioned in this first verse that bring up some valuable discussions. And I hope you'll understand that when we get to the end, I do have a point. But verse 1, Paul and Timothy Now, Timothy didn't write the book, although he might have been the guy, the amanuensis, who was dictating it as Paul was dictating it to him. It's not that Paul and Timothy wrote the book jointly, because right away in verse 3, Paul starts saying, I, and it's a very personal book for him. But Timothy was there with him in the jail there in Rome, and so he says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, and then he goes on to greet them and tell how he prays for them, but we'll just stop right there with verse 1, and we need to talk for a few minutes about church government and church history in order to understand what some of these terms are about. In the history of the church, it's necessary when you have people to come up with some way of organizing how you're going to minister to those people and meet the needs of those people. And through history, several different styles of church government have developed. And one of them, the first one probably really that, that developed in history, is what's called an episcopal form of government. Now, the word there, bishops, in verse 1, is the word episcopos. Now, if you break that word down, it comes from two words in the Greek. Skopos, which is a word that means to look intently on or to pay attention to or really to look out for and to protect. We use the word in microscope and telescope and things like that, scoping it out. And the, the prefix epi, which is a word that literally in the Greek refers to closeness of relationship. It can be against or over or on or at. But the idea here, and we often translate it into the English word overseer, and that means literally what episkopos means, to oversee, to see things from a global kind of perspective and to look out for danger and to watch out for people. And so this term, for bishop that's here in our text is the word episkopos. Now, what happened in the history of the church, and this is used a lot in the the New Testament, by the way, but what happened with the overseers is now somebody who's an overseer needs someone to oversee them, and who's going to oversee them? And so what developed in the history of the church within the first uh, 300 years was that a whole power structure, a whole structure of authority developed, whereby there are different levels of, of legislated authority. And there are still today many churches that call themselves an Episcopal form of government. And when you hear that, you've probably heard of Episcopalians. Episcopalians is a little bit different from Episcopal. Episcopalians are Anglicans members of the Church of England, but they came over to America and nobody wants to be an Anglican when you're an American and so they just call them Episcopalians. But they're, they are an Episcopal form of government. They have lots of layers of bureaucracy within the church. Now, the, primary, the two primary Episcopal churches, Episcopal forms of government in the world today, one of them is the Roman Catholic Church and the other is the Eastern Orthodox Church. They actually at one point were one church, but what happened is you had these layers of leadership. They couldn't quite agree on things, and and, uh, so there was a threat to from Rome to, or there was a threat from some of the Eastern churches, Constantinople, to, hey, maybe we ought to kick the Bishop of Rome, who later became known as the Pope. We could boot him out and excommunicate him. And he said, no, I'm going to excommunicate you. And they had this fight, and the church divided into two groups, the Orthodox group and the Catholic group. And each of those churches has an extensive layer of authority that's Institute, and it all comes basically from this word episcopos. Who's going to oversee it? How is it going to be overseen? Now, an episcopal form of church government, also one of the distinctions, is that in general they trace their ancestry, they trace their authority back to um, the apostles themselves. Now, in each case of every church who does that, you really have to stretch. History to really believe that there actually is that passed down apostolic succession, they call it. It's a stretch, but they would say that we're the church that started in the book of Acts. Of course, every church claims their you know, from the book of Acts. Even a church that's been around for five or ten years usually says that. But the Episcopal form is based on that structure. Now, not only the Catholics and the Orthodox, but many Lutherans, some Methodists even, though they were started by Wesley, they still see themselves as being in this Episcopal form of leadership, large authority pyramid structure. And there isn't anything inherently wrong with that structure. I don't think the structure is the problem when we talk about any form of church government. But when the Reformation came along, and those people who are Protestants, which include most of us, basically split off from, from the Catholic Church, with Martin Luther and late, later certain Calvin and Zwingli and others, they saw the corruption that had developed within the episcopal form of government, and they rightfully said, hey, wait a minute, it was really simple back in the New Testament. They talked about elders. They just talked about, yeah, and they would say, there's no difference between an overseer, a bishop, an episkopos, and somebody who's an elder. And the word elder usually, when it appears in the New Testament, is the word presbyteros. It's a person who, well, literally the word means you're older than other people. It's just the word elder. It means old, but compared to somebody else. And so they're going, really, that's the point. And so they came up with what's called the Presbyterian form of church government, and that is there's, a, there's a, a multiple amount of people who are elders. They get there from experience and by being qualified, certainly, as leaders, but ultimately, instead of the church being governed by this large bureaucracy, as in an Episcopal form, We would say, no, the key here is that the church should be run by the older people, by the elders. And so an organization is set up, and today, most Presbyterians, a lot of other denominations, probably, you know, half at least of of all people who are Protestants, would also fall into this Presbyterian form of government where it's not just, you know, one person leading, and it's not this huge bureaucracy, but it's a recognition that within the church there are those who are called to be the elders, the leaders. And Presbyterians tend to see the episcopos, the bishops, as being roughly the same as a presbyter or an elder, So have I lost you completely, or are you bored? I just need to bring this thing full circle so you understand these words when they come up in the text. Now, in our text also, we have the word deacon. A deacon was an officer within the church, usually distinct from either an overseer or an elder, but the deacon would also often be the same person who was also an elder or an overseer. Paul calls himself a deacon. The word "deacon" means to be a servant. Most people trace the deacons back to Acts chapter six, where they needed someone to help feed the widows and the apostles were were busy doing the teaching in the in the body, and so they said, we need to pick people who can who can deal with some of the uh, details of and the logistics of running the church. And so that's kind of where deacons came from. But they were also ministers, and and the word minister is the same word. It means to serve, to be a deacon. But Stephen, who was one of those initial deacons who were chosen, in the very next chapter is preaching this incredible sermon that led to him being the first martyr of the church. The word deacon, interestingly enough, it came to refer to somebody who was a busboy in a restaurant or a waiter, somebody who would clean up. But actually, if you look at the etymology of the word, it's, it take, it's a word, kanos, that's a, that's a word that means dust. And the prefix dia, which means it's all through it, it's everywhere. And so really, the word for deacon is a word that meant somebody who rise, raises dust, who leaves a cloud of dust where they go, because they're cleaning Now, if you would like to be a deacon, this Saturday is a perfect opportunity. (laughs) You come to church, and you raise some dust, and you sweep some stuff, and you do some, and it's like you're deaconing. That's really what it means. The other word, oh, by the way, a couple of other potential forms of church government. You have the episkopos, which is a whole hierarchy. You have the, the Presbyterian form of government, which is a, a, a group of elders who kind of oversee and coordinate things in conjunction often with deacons. But there's also and an somewhat uniquely American form of church government called congregational. Many, if not most, Baptist churches have a tendency to be congregational. And it's sort of a uniquely American phenomenon because we are really into democracy and we want everyone to have a say and everyone to have a vote. Well, the truth is everyone has a say and a vote. In a Presbyterian form of government, the presbyters, the elders are usually selected by uh, the members of the congregation. But sometimes we want everyone to be involved. Now, I grew up in a church that was congregational. And I remember when we were building a new bathroom, we spent hours, the whole church, like we would be sitting here, arguing about the bathroom in this new uh, nursery building because it was the church office and the nursery that were sharing a bathroom. And I remember lots of arguments about how many small toilets to put in and how many large toilets, and everyone in the church got a say. You know, and as a kid, boy, you sit and go, this is great, because people start hating each other. It was like this back and forth, and that's kind of congregational form of government. It's like, let's all rule The weakness of congregational governments is the majority of people are usually wrong. And so, that's a, that's a problem with that. The other form of church government that, that I know of is just a, um, you know, monarchy, a dictatorship. It's one guy. It's all about him. He does whatever he wants. And if you want to play with him, you can play. And if not, you're gone. Now, those are basically the four, you know, forms of government. You can come up with biblical support for an Episcopal form of government. You can come up with biblical support for a Presbyterian form of government. You can even probably stretch it and come up with support for a congregational form of government. The one that's really hard to support is the dictatorship. And so naturally, that's in reality what so many churches are. You know, of all these terms that describe who we are when we're, when we're ministering, um, the one that's only used once in the New Testament is pastor, and so that's the one we use the most. Because as pastors, we control things. So everybody's thinking, okay, where's the pastor fit in? It's a gift that Paul talks about in the book of Ephesians. But other than that, they did talk about elders who rule and elders who teach. And so, biblically, there is that aspect, the acknowledgement that obviously there are some people who are, who are gifted and anointed to, to lead the elders and to teach the elders. And, and hopefully, that's the kind of system that we have. But I could sit and defend any of them. I know some churches that are Episcopal in form. They do a great job and really honor the Lord and serve Him. I know some churches who have a Presbyterian form of government, and, and they do well also. I know some congregational churches that are really laudable in the way that they do church. They do it with, a, with that kind of a form. And I know some churches that have a dictatorship, and with a benevolent dictator, that works fine for them too. So the question isn't the form Church would be so easy if what we had was if you do it right, if you have the right structure and form, we could organize it and then churches will be blessed. But the truth is, it's not that simple. Because any form of church government can be blessed by God, and any form of church government can completely fall apart based on really one thing, and it's something that we skipped over from verse 1. Oh, one thing also that I should tell you is not only that if you come to the workday, we'll give you a deacon badge, but <laughs> it also says in verse 1, to all the saints, saints, I thought saints were people who were so good. And then they've died, kind of like the Baseball Hall of Fame, and then you wait a while, and then you give them this title if they've had enough, if they've been beatified, and you can verify miracles that they did and everything. But here Paul's going, all the saints at, Philippian, at Philippi. See, the word saint, hagios, it, it means holy. And the glorious truth is, well, the bad news is, I know most of you, and you will never be beatified you'll never become a saint if it means being someone who's huger than life. And I think I've pretty much blown that for myself as well. But, you know, if I was going to find miracles in my life, it would just be that God let me survive this long. But the truth is, true holiness and true sainthood comes because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And therefore, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you are a saint, He looks at you and would say you're a saint. He sees you dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and he sees you and me as holy. And I love that Paul, in looking at the Philippians, calls them saints. He says, all of you, everyone there in the church, you're all saints. And so I want to let you know that's who you are, that's where you stand. Whatever other role you play, Saints aren't some special category of people. They're people who have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, who have received his sacrifice on our behalf, our sins placed on him, and now we're clean and holy, and that's how he looks at us. But here you have all of these categories, all of this history, all of these different ways of doing church, but the key really is in verse, the beginning of verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ. I like the humility of Paul, including Timothy in the thing. But then, you know, often when Paul writes a letter, he would say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Because there were times when his authority was being challenged by others, and sometimes he'd have to stand up and say, look, if these guys are claiming to be apostles, hey, if anybody's an apostle, I am. I'll compare wounds with you. We'll compare stories. I saw Jesus Christ himself. He spoke to me and he commissioned me. And so at times Paul had to, and he hated to, but sometimes he just had to to flash his apostolic credentials. But in this case, these are people who understand, who get it, who are doing it right who are the kind of church that God wants them to be. And so there's no reminding them of his authority. Instead, there's this beautiful statement of his desire to be a servant, of his desire to offer himself. Now, the word deacon means, like I say, stirring up dust. It came to mean serving. But this word for servant here, doulos, is a little bit different. It literally means a slave. Now, I've heard a lot of good sermons preached on the fact that a doulos is someone who was serving by their own choice as opposed to someone who was a real slave. Um, That's not correct, so throw that little Greek lesson out the window. A doulos was just a slave, period. However, it is true that there are two categories of doulos, two categories of servants. There are some who are serving because they're in debt. That's like most of us. You got bills to pay, so you have to serve. But if you had fulfilled your obligation and paid off your debt, and your boss was going to set you free, there was still an option of saying, you know what? I like it here. And even though I've worked myself out of the hole that I was in, I still want to work for you. I still would like to serve you. And When you came into that category, the guy would acknowledge it by putting your ear up against the doorpost and piercing your ear and putting an earring in your ear. That way, when you're out working, everyone knew. You're doing this because you want to, not because you have to. The job didn't change, but the obligation changed. Now, when it comes to serving God, obviously, this is voluntary, he doesn't force us to. We owe him everything, and yet you're free not to. If you want to come to Jesus Christ, you're free to come to him. But that also means that you're free to reject him if that's really what you want to do. Is that right? No, it's, it's foolish. But he still allows you to do it. And so when you talk about being a bondservant of Jesus Christ, you're talking about someone whose ear has been pierced. They would call it, your ear has been opened. There's a couple of places. In fact, I'm going to read from Isaiah 50 to you as it, as it refers to this practice. And Isaiah 50, verse, beginning with verse 5. See if you can figure out who's talking here. The Lord God has opened my ear. That is, he's pierced my ear. And I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Jesus Christ, this was a messianic prophecy there in Isaiah 50. Remember, it's moving toward Isaiah 52 and 53 that just make it really obvious. But here was Jesus willingly offering himself as they were plucking out the hair from his beard, as they were spitting in his face, as they were hitting him while he was blindfolded and saying, Who hit you? Hey, you feel this one coming? Wham! He was doing it willfully and he said, I gave my ear to that. There's also a verse over in Psalm 40 that refers to the same thing My ear hast thou opened. It's the same idea. Jesus Christ showed us what it means to be a servant, and it's something that we either choose to do or we choose not to do. What does this have to do with all this church history stuff and church government and who runs things in the church? Simply this. If you'd pay attention to what it is to be a bond servant, that other stuff wouldn't even matter. If we understand that we are servants, that that Christianity is not about power and influence, it's not about control and structure, it's about serving, then any of those forms of church government would work just fine. If you have, you know, even, you know, if you have a great structure, but all of those people see themselves as servants of Jesus Christ, good things will happen. If you have a group of elders, a plurality of elders, and these are people who are really sold out to Jesus Christ, love him and want to serve him, works just fine. If you have a congregation of people where everyone just loves God and and wants to serve him, nobody's going to be fighting about power. In fact, if you have a dictator over the church who's a good person, who's a servant, hey, that works okay too. Now, which are we? We? Sometimes it's even hard to pin it down. I'll, I, I am not a dictator. See, the problem, I could be, you know, when I came to the church, I could have made it any way I wanted. I kind of wrote everything. So, you know, I could have stacked the deck that way. And see, the problem with a benevolent dictator is, for one thing, are they going to continue to be benevolent? Can they handle the power once they get it? But the other thing, benevolent dictator's die, leave, fall. All sorts of things happen, and they leave things in a mess because it's all been about them. So really, in our church, we have elders. We have people that God has raised up to be in leadership over different areas, and the way we structured our church in terms of an organizational setup is that we have a board of elders, and Everything that we do, either they're unanimous or we don't do it. I can come up with the best idea in the world. And if one person who's an elder in the church says, I don't feel good about this, then we're going to continue to pray and we're not going to do it. Now, you might say, that's so inefficient, Dave. We trust you, just do what you want. But I don't trust me. I know me too well to do that. And I am so thankful for godly people that God has raised up who can talk me out of stuff. Or we can go, let's hang on here a minute on this. And so really, I think, although I'm the leader of the church and and I'm the ruling elder, if there is such a thing, I'm the one who does the majority of the teaching, although some of our other elders teach on occasions, in reality, I think that's kind of the way we're set up. But you know what? That will fail miserably if we forget what it is to be a servant, even for me as the pastor. And again, that term means shepherd, and it's only used once in terms of uh, everything that's in the New Testament. But as the leader of the church, if I start to become corrupted, and if my character flaws begin to dominate what we do, then I'm going to be figuring out how can, I, how can I manage these elders? How can I stack the deck with people who will just say they like whatever it is that I do, whatever I say? Or I can corrupt a congregation if it's a congregational form. Or I can even kiss up to to authorities that are over me in an Episcopal form and get away with things. It's all relative, but it doesn't work without being a servant. As soon as you let go of your servanthood, forget it. It doesn't matter what form you have. You're sunk. You're gone. That's why the, the New Testament does not ever give a job description for a deacon or an elder or a bishop or a pastor. It doesn't, give, doesn't say what you're supposed to do. That's why we have all these different theories and forms. But one thing that New Testament is very clear about is the character qualifications for those people. And the Bible emphasizes again and again in First Timothy and Titus, other places, hey, if you are serving God... In the body of Christ, here's what your life needs to be. And the one thing that all that stuff boils down to is, you better be a servant. If you're not a servant, nothing else matters. Now, I have to make it clear, though. I'm not your servant. I don't work for you. That's congregational. I'm not employed by the elders. That's Presbyterian. And I don't act trying to please Calvary Chapel or anything organization that's over us. That's Episcopal. But it's something more basic than that. Oh, I want to serve you, but I really serve God. And if I keep that in mind, I'll be a good servant to you. And I'll get along well with my elders. And everyone else will be more or less happy with me. But as soon as I start serving you, now I can't rattle your cage anymore because I have to be careful. In a congregational form of government, if you confront people on things that they need to hear and they don't know, they could be voting you out tomorrow. It's like, you aren't tickling our ears anymore. You're out of here. Or if some of the board members tend to have, the elders have a certain perspective and they don't like the way I'm going, boom. I better keep them happy or they're going to fire me. You know, and those kinds of things cause us to have our eyes on the wrong thing. We're looking at structure. We're looking at power. We're looking at politics. As long as, however, it's structured, as long as my eyes are on my boss and I'm serving him and you do the same thing and all of our leaders in our church and all the different ministries, in reality, everyone who's leading a ministry in our church is an elder. The women who are involved with women's ministries, the guys that are teaching home fellowships, those who run the youth group, the, the people who coordinate the outreaches to Mexico, and those who do the ones at the convalescent hospital, these are all elders. In some ways, they're all episcopals, bishops as well. So take your own title and wear it. I don't care. And while you're at it, put saint in front of your name because you're one of those too. But whatever it is that you do, understand your calling is to be a servant of Jesus Christ. And if you forget that, nothing else works. If you remember that, it'll all else, everything else will be fine. Take the titles if you want them. But don't forget the title of servant. Because that's ultimately what it's all about. And that's what we'll decide as our church is moving into a next phase and really a fresh start and so many of us are just excited about what God's doing and what God is going to do as we have this new facility and and we're just, it's going to feel really nice for that to happen. But if somewhere along the line our church develops into a political structure, develops into a power relationship sort of thing, then we're in big trouble. If we lose the heart of a doulos, of a servant, then nothing else that happens will matter. That will define our church. And ultimately, if we have the heart of a servant, you're also going to see joy. And as we go through the book of Philippians, I'm excited because joy is the key to us being who God wants us to be and that joy comes from being a servant. Put that first, joy follows And we will be blessed as a church. Start losing that servanthood and all the great programs in the world and all the hype and promotion and advertising and everything else. It means nothing. It really does. Jerry Hill wrote some verses down for me. He heard the part of the service on the internet, and he goes, hey, I thought of these verses, and I'm just going to read them to you. Mark 10:42. but Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be last of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That is something that we just have to keep in mind. We can't afford to let go of that. And if we develop as the early church did to a point where now it starts to become more about structure than character, more about titles than, than serving, then we're done. We might as well close the doors. We might as well just sell that new church for a profit and donate the money to somebody and let's call it quits. But if we will continue to submit our lives as God's servants and work together, remembering we're not serving each other. You know, if I was serving you, there are times when I would just be really disappointed. It's frustrating to try to lead you people sometimes. Oh, it has its joys. But I was thinking again to last night at our Israel reunion of how frustrated some of the times I was in Israel just trying to get a group of people on the bus. <laughs> you know, just, trying to, just trying to teach them that when you get somewhere, go to the bathroom first and then, you know. But, you know, the truth is sometimes it's a great joy to lead you and to serve you. And sometimes it's a real pain in the neck. And that's why I have to remember, and you do too, we serve the Lord Christ. We, we serve Him. He's the one we're working for. He's our boss. Now, if He really is our boss, then we will get along with each other. And we will submit ourselves one to another. But it can't be because we work for each other. We are not hirelings. We are servants of the Most High God. And if we remember that, and if our church reflects that, and if people see how we get along and how we work together and what God does in such a way that they go, wow, these people understand servanthood. And I don't see a big power struggle. And I don't see a sophisticated structure of leadership. Then we will start to look like what the church is supposed to look like. And that's the way it's supposed to be. That's what... I believe a Philippian church is. And so Paul lays this on him in verse 1 and reminds him of where he's coming from, and you'll see the theme running throughout the book. You'll see this heart going throughout his love letter to the Philippians. And I pray that as Paul is exhorting the Philippians that we would receive it as a letter directly from our boss, our God, teaching us what it means to serve him. And if we do that, you're going to see joy popping out all over the place because that's what happens when we get it. Let's pray. Lord, we're really grateful that you would even want people like us working for you. Now, you're a great boss. You don't force us into anything, and yet you set the example by dying first. By submitting yourself and serving first, help us to learn that lesson, Lord. And help us as a church, as we are transitioning into this fresh start, Lord, help us to keep our eyes focused on what matters and that we all just want to serve you. So lead and guide us, Lord. Strengthen us where we need it knock us down if we need to be slapped around a little bit when we start getting too uppity. But Lord, we want this to be a place of joy. And we know that that joy comes from serving, and so that's what we intend to do. And we thank you, God, for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all